Turn with me to Genesis 22. Genesis 22. Probably a familiar story to you, but we're going to read it. Genesis 22, and we'll read most of the chapter. We'll go down through verse 19. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son, Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both of them went together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now I read this to you because this is a story often preached in church, often taught to children in Sunday school. And here's how one well-respected children's curriculum suggests that we interpret this story. The object lesson is, quote, God wants us to love others enough to sacrifice them, sacrifice for them, rather, unquote. I guess that's love, too. (laughs) Now, before I I read this lesson all the way through, and it it does give a good gospel presentation. It it talks about the sacrifice of Christ for our sins, and the, the gospel in it is accurate. But the lesson is that just as Jesus was willing to sacrifice For us, and Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac, God wants us to be willing to sacrifice for others. 
And then you get to the application section and, you're, and the kids are supposed to bring all kinds of things with them, like, like a, an empty box to represent time and a, and a, clo- a watch to represent time and a Bible and various different things. And, and the lesson is, is that we can sacrifice by sharing our time, our toys, our bicycles, our video games, and so forth. And maybe it means giving money sacrificially to someone in, in need. And these are all good lessons. These are things I would want my children to be taught, and I would be thankful that they're being taught these lessons. So the question for me is, how would I kindly go to that Sunday school teacher and say, thank you for teaching these great lessons to my kids, but you missed the whole point of the story. How would we say that nicely? So we're in the middle of introducing the Pentateuch, and as, as I've said before, you're going to get much more out of the series if you hear every message. And so just to get us caught up here so far, we've given the big picture of the Pentateuch. I've introduced you to the theological center, what I'm calling the central directive of Genesis 1, 26 through 28, which is not only the point of the Pentateuch, but the point of the whole Bible. And then last time we looked at how the Christian is to interact with and understand the Old Testament law. And this is complicated because we're under the new covenant, not the old covenant. And yet, All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So what do we do with that? And so last time I suggested a way to understand and apply the law which doesn't violate the covenant differences at all, but which allows you to apply the law of God without being bound by the law of God. And the reason for that study was because Christians are often prone to be uncomfortable with the law. So last week we did the Christian in the Old Testament law. This evening, I want to do the Christian in the Old Testament story because I think it's safe to say that if we're often too uncomfortable with the law, I would suggest that perhaps we're sometimes too comfortable with the stories of the Old Testament. Now, why is that? Well, if you grew up in the church or even have attended a fairly typical evangelical church for any period of time, Many of these stories have been told to you in Sunday school or in sermons, and it's safe to say that they're often given a moral, as if the stories of the Bible are given to us as some sort of Aesop's fables from heaven. And that's the whole reason for the stories. Now, if you think that's maybe just an an issue with children's lessons, I think it's a serious issue in the pulpit as well. I think that's the primary way that the Old Testament is preached from the pulpits of America. Uh, one pastor, he's a good man, he's a faithful shepherd. He mentions Christ, he gives the gospel. He is, he is a faithful man for his presentation of the gospel. But his presentation of this particular text is, I think, fairly typical to the use of the Old, Old Testament stories. The main lesson he drew from Genesis 22 is, is that we should leave a legacy of love for our family to follow. Now, how he got from the sacrifice of Isaac to that was actually quite a process, But that's his lesson. And clearly, and this is what we call eisegesis reading into the text, clearly he had the idea for the topic first and went and found a text to fit his message afterwards. And so we would would kindly reject that. Is that the point of the story? That we should leave a legacy of love for our family? Well, the stories of the Old Testament are in what's called the literary genre of narrative as opposed to the genre of law or prophecy and and others and poetry and so forth, a large portion of the Pentateuch is narrative. Even though it's called the law, that's still, it's it's just its nickname. 
And I'm going to use the term narrative tonight since I think it more accurately describes that type of biblical uh, uh, text because under narrative there are different types of their stories and their accounts, their reports, and I won't go into all of that. But narrative is a good broad term that just says a story, a, a, a thing that's happening. And so tonight, I'm going to use exactly the same framework we used last week. I think it worked well for us. We'll utilize the idea of learning to fly an airplane to look at the narrative portions of the Pentateuch. And so we'll do first basic orientation. And then if you want to get closer to the airplane, then we'll do specific instructions. And then we'll fly the airplane. We'll apply what we learned together. And I'm doing this as part of our introductory series to the Pentateuch, just so, so this is in your mind already as we begin walking through the text, because once we start in Genesis 1, we're going to be zipping through it at a pretty good pace. So let's do basic orientation. And, and like last time, there are four items in our basic orientation, just some essential concepts for you to understand and, and to think about to kind of get, get your wheels turning. The first essential concept the Bible is divinely inspired literature. The Bible is divinely inspired literature. Now, when we think of literature, I think we often think of those English lit classes that we are forced to take and, and plow, through our, plow our way through those books that we would sell immediately at the end of the semester, unless you happen to be an English major, and we always kind of looked at those with, with a little suspicion. And so when we hear the word literature, we kind of cringe because that, to me, literature says boring and says forced to do something that's not in my major in school and, and those sorts of things. Um, we, we hold our belief in Scripture as inspired as an inerrant, very dear. And so when we just say the Bible is literature, we kind of say, no, that's not true. It's, it's more than that. It's, it's different than that. And I think we're hesitant to put the Bible even in the same class as Shakespeare, the great playwright, or T.S. Eliot, the great poet, or Charles Dickens, the great storyteller. But the Bible contains all those types of literature. It, somebody might say, well, it doesn't contain a play. Yes, it does. Song of Solomon is set up as a play. It is a poet, a, a, a poem set up like a, a drama. And of course, all the Psalms are considered poetry, and the Bible's filled with stories. Those are the parts of the Bible that we're most familiar with and that, that fill our Sunday school rooms, right? But in our hesitation to classify Scripture as literature, I think we can forget that it is the greatest literary masterpiece of all time. And we need to treat it that way. I mean, what other piece of literature was written by about 40 different authors ranging from farmers all the way to kings over a period of 1,500 years, never contradicting each other and keeping the same storyline going from beginning to end? That, that's impossible, except with God. Now, certainly the biblical narratives are much more than great literature just because of divine inspiration, but they're not less than great literature either. And so we need to treat them that way. I'll just give you one example. We can see the divine nature of this literature because the human authors have written from the, the, the inspired text, they've written from what we call an omniscient point of view, meaning that God revealed information to them that they didn't have in any other fashion. In fact, turn back one chapter to Genesis 21, and I'll give you an example. In Genesis 21, Abraham has had a son, Ishmael, by his wife's maidservant, Hagar, but his wife, Sarah, wants Abraham to remove Hagar and Ishmael from the family. And so we have family distress here. And in verse 11, And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. 
In other words, the writer, by God's power, reveals what was in Abraham's mind and in his heart. That is writing from an omniscient point of view. And the reason that's so important for us to understand is that tells us don't question Scripture. Don't, don't, don't come to Scripture analyzing it as if you sit in judgment over Scripture. Scripture has already been made perfectly. You don't need to judge whether it's good or not. It is good. And in fact, it reveals things that only God could reveal. So the Bible is, is literature. It is, it is good literature. It's fabulous literature, and we should treat it that way. Here's a second item for us to consider in our basic orientation. The power of narrative is in showing, not telling. The power of narrative is in showing, not telling, or showing rather than the telling. There's great advantages to the story. It makes the reader think. It makes you draw conclusions. It makes you interact with with the text. It records the real life events of the people in God's kingdom plan. It makes you engage with the mind of God it, rather than just always being taught didactically, didactically rather, uh, like an epistle. We love the epistles of Paul. We love the epistles of, of Peter and so forth, but they're not stories. And they speak to us in a completely different way. That's why when you go through a story, I can preach 50 verses in one evening. When you go through an epistle, we, we boil it down to two or three or four verses because it's just so much more dense. But in a story, we, we read um, things that, that make us engage with the mind of God. For example, in the same example here of Abraham and his son Ishmael by the servant Hagar, we learn Ishmael's name in Genesis 16. His name is Ishmael. In fact, we know this because in Genesis 16, the angel of the Lord named Ishmael. He told Abraham what, what to name him, told Hagar rather. Ishmael is mentioned by name three times in chapter 16, five times in chapter 17, nine times in chapter 25, a couple more mentions by name later in Genesis. It's just Ishmael all over the place. But here in this text, in Genesis 21, the question here is, who is the child of promise? Through whom is the nation of God going to be formed? And yet Ishmael is mentioned in the story in almost every verse. But how is he referenced? Verse 9, he's called the son. Verse 10, the son of the slave woman. Verse 11, his son. Verse 12, the boy. Verse 13, the son of the slave woman. Verse 14, the child. Verse 15, the child. Verse 16, the child. Verses 17 through 20, four times, the boy, the boy, the boy, the boy. Why all of a sudden is his name not given in the text? Well, look at verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And you have in verse 3, Isaac, verse 4, Isaac, verse 5, Isaac, verse uh, 10, Isaac, verse 12, Isaac. Why? Because you have Isaac and Ishmael interwoven together in the same chapter. Isaac, 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 Isaac. Ishmael's just the boy, the child, the son. Why is this? Because Isaac is the child of promise. Isaac is the one through whom the chosen nation of Israel will become uh, the, the, the full nation He's the miracle baby. He's the promised child. And so even in the arrangement of how the, the use of, of pronouns and the use of vague descriptors to describe 
Ishmael versus the name of Isaac. We see the literature perfectly coming together to tell us this story. It, it is so important for us to understand that, to understand that, that the, the, the written word here is to show us something. And so we examine it that way. We're not looking for the lesson. It, the end of every chapter doesn't say, uh, doesn't say, here are some study questions for you to consider this week. You're supposed to come up with those questions and you're supposed to answer them from the text. Here's a third part of our basic orientation. A couple of big words here, but I think we can get through them. Narrative is theological and doxological. Theological and doxological. If you don't know how to spell doxological, it is D-O-X-O logical. Now, these are big words, but I want you to understand these. Theological, theology, we understand this. This just means the study of God. And this is important to realize that the narratives are accomplished by God. All the stories are records of events that are divinely orchestrated. The, the Bible wasn't written so that we could teach third grade Sunday school. They're, these are real events with real people happening. These aren't just tales with a moral. In other words, Isaac wasn't almost sacrificed by Abraham so that you would have something to say on a Sunday when it's your turn to teach the children. It's a real event that really happened. So it's theological. These are narratives. These are stories accomplished by God. But they're also doxological. Doxology is the study of God's glory. The study of his glory. The narratives are not only accomplished by God, but they're ultimately to point all glory to him. They're to his praise and to his glory. Great example is Joseph. This is the longest single story in Genesis. And you have, of course, his dreams, his being sold into slavery, imprisoned in Egypt, rising to power as the second in command over Egypt, presiding over the famine in all of the ancient Near East, and finally observing the repentance of his brothers for their sin in selling him. And we get Joseph's commentary to his brothers, which shows us the theology and the doxology of God in this story. Genesis 50, verse 20 as for you, this is Joseph speaking, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So we see that God is all sovereign and God to the glory of his grace kept Israel preserved and alive through those events. So the narratives show us theology and doxology and that's a, it's a great standpoint from which to approach them. And one last item in our basic orientation all narrative is part of God's plan for teaching us. All narrative is part of God's plan for teaching us. You know, one of the things that I cherish in my heart is the heritage that I have. My, both of my grandfathers were, were lifelong pastors. That was their career. Um, both of them pastored for 43 years in different parts of the country, different denominations. But the one thing they had in common was that in a day and age where uh, one of my grandfathers, his pastoral library was about three feet wide on one shelf. That's all he had. So instead of being a great man of learning, what he did was he read his Bible through four times a year. He just read it continually. And so he understood the value of the entire Bible and he was just an encyclopedia of scripture. But all of the narrative is part of God's plan for teaching us. And yet we, by the church, by pastors, by our Sunday school teachers when we're little, we're sometimes constricted and we're restricted to the stories that we think are suitable. For example, here are sermons or Sunday school lessons you'll probably rarely hear. 
Simeon and Levi slaughter the men of Shechem in Genesis 34. Judah, how to be immoral with your own daughter-in-law, Genesis 38. How to be a midwife and a liar and be blessed by God for it in Exodus 1. Multiple ways to receive the death penalty from Exodus through Deuteronomy. From the life of Jacob, why marrying two women is a really bad idea. And my favorite, you will never hear what to do about a white hair on a disgusting skin condition from Leviticus 13. We don't hear those lessons, and I think it's because we don't know what to do with them. But they are part of God's inspired text. They're, they're not just somehow the, the glue that holds the real stories together. They are part of God's inspired narrative and they fit into the broad scheme of the Bible's redemptive story. So those are just some basic orientation thoughts to get your minds thinking here. So let's do some specific instructions and we'll do five of them once again. I think our tendency in narrative is to read through a story once and immediately jump to application as if all the stories in the Bible are really all about me. That Abraham almost sacrificed Isaac so that I would be a better Christian. That that's the whole reason for it. So let's do this in the form of questions again. Five questions that we would ask ourselves as we're reading the text as we're studying it. The first one's obvious. What is happening in the story itself? What is happening in the story itself? This is a logical first step, and I say this because you shouldn't rush this step. I I think most of the time we read a story in the Bible, we get to the end of it and say, I wonder what that applies in my, how that applies in my life. I think that's the wrong first question. That's about the last question you're going to ask. I won't say a lot about this except to say that you can't skip this process. In Bible Training Institute, we teach this process in detail. Now, let me just give you a couple of highlights. When, when you're asking the question, what's happening in the story, what you're looking for is what's the, what's the setting, what's happening in the time that this is written. And if you don't know where to find that information, any study Bible has a good what's called introduction at the beginning of every book, and that tells you the setting. How does the plot develop? Narrative is a story. It's a plot. Have you ever seen a movie that's just like one thing happening after another and by the end of the movie, you wonder why did I just waste two hours of my life? What are you looking for in a movie? You're looking for tension. You're looking for a problem to be solved. You're looking for excitement. Well, the narrative, every narrative has some sort of problem or issue that needs to be resolved. And so if you can look around and say, well, what's the issue that needs to be resolved here? In Genesis 21, the, the story of, of Isaac and Ishmael who, in competition here, the issue is, who is God's chosen child? How's that going to be resolved? And the tension comes when Abraham doesn't want to honor God's promise. He wants to, he wants to go with Ishmael when Isaac was the chosen child. You can ask questions like, who are the main characters? Are they detailed characters or are they more passing uh, characters? Very important question. Who is the implied audience? In other words, who is this originally written to? And no, the answer is not to me, of course. That's not what what the answer is. Can I say it this way? The Bible was written for you, but the Bible was not written to you. I am not a fan of the phrase, the Bible is God's love letter to you, because the Bible wasn't written to you, and the Bible is not a love letter. It, it It is the revealed redemptive plan of God which includes the fury of his wrath there's nothing loving about that from our standpoint it is the revealing of his redemptive plan and so when you ask the question who's the implied audience in the Pentateuch this is easy the answer is always the same anywhere from Genesis to Deuteronomy 
It was written to the Israelites on the banks of the Jordan River, ready to enter the promised land. That's who this is to. And to the Israelites in the land, while trying to live faithfully before Yahweh is a light to the nations. So, so it's written to Israel. That doesn't mean, as we saw last week, that it doesn't apply to us. But we need to understand that audience. Because if you don't think about the audience, then you're not going to think about what we call authorial intent. What was the intent of the author? Was the intent of the author of Genesis 22 to make you go home and, and create more family traditions? Is that the intent? I don't think it was. But the people of Israel, as you think about, what did they need to know? And the Pentateuch tells us this. They needed to know their origins. That's Genesis. They need to be grateful for their existence. That's Exodus. They need to know how to obey God. That's Leviticus. They need to know how to grow in their maturity and their faith. That's Numbers. And they need to be reminded of all those things one more time. That's Deuteronomy. And so understanding the original audience or implied audience helps you grasp the story. Second big question we would ask is, what theological implications are found in the story? What theological implications are found in the story? Now, let me say that a different way. What do we learn about God? And what do we learn about mankind? And and how do they work together? What do we learn about God? Well, for example... In Genesis 1 through 3 alone, here's what we learn about God. He is all-powerful in nature. He can create from nothing. He has a kingdom plan. Genesis 1, 26 and 28 tells us this. He is holy and pure as demonstrated by his hatred of sin. And he is a God of integrity. He did exactly what he promised to Adam and Eve. Those are just a, that's just a sample. What do we learn about humanity from the same three chapters of Genesis? We learn that mankind is created in the image of God. We learn that he's created in the image of God as male and female and that we're built to live in community of marriage with very few exceptions. We learn the origin of the sin of mankind. So every text of scripture has some sort of theological underpinning and foundation to it. It's not just a moral lesson. It teaches you about God and it teaches you about mankind. The third question we would ask And this is just all, by the way, by observing the English text. You don't have to learn Hebrew to understand these questions. Third question, how does this story contribute to the kingdom theme of Scripture? How does this story contribute to the kingdom theme of Scripture, the kingdom theme? Now, remember the central directive we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Genesis 1, beginning in verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and so forth. So God has a kingdom plan. How is this narrative helping advance that plan? How is it helping work that plan out, the, the dominion of humanity on earth? And as we saw last time, under a, a, an earthly king who is also a heavenly king. How does it tie in? Now, there might be some ambiguity. There might be some vagueness. There might be multiple possibilities. But at least you're looking at the story through the lens of the whole picture and not just an isolated story all by itself. For example, the book of Ruth, it's not in the Pentateuch, but I think it's a good example for us. I preached through Ruth a couple of years ago, and we tried to be faithful to this concept, but 
You recall that Ruth is the story of a Moabite woman who is faithful to the Lord and to her Jewish mother-in-law, Naomi. She joins God's people. She becomes one of them. And, and we could do many good lessons on the value of hard work, of faithfulness, of God's goodness and providence. These are all true. These are all legitimate applications. And we don't shy away from application of Scripture at all. But the kingdom story of Ruth is found at the very end. That Ruth had a son who had a son who had a son whose name was David. And David, of course, would be the chosen king of Israel who would be promised by God an eternal kingdom. And so the whole story of Ruth gives us great examples of of ways to live our Christian life. But that's not the main purpose of the story. The main purpose of the story is to say, how did David get here? That's what it's about. Here's a fourth question we could ask. And this is one of my favorite parts is, how does this story make its way to Christ? How does this story make its way to Christ? Now, we would reject the idea that Christ is in every verse of Scripture. That's simply not true, and it's not necessary. When you have in Leviticus 13 that if you have a white hair in the middle of a leprosy spot, I don't know how you're going to find Christ in there. And what it does is it makes you allegorize and uh, make symbolic texts of Scripture to push them ahead to a Christ interpretation without any evidence actually in the text itself. Now, there are some texts that clearly, explicitly speak of Christ. Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, that's obvious. That is accepted across the board in Christendom that that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Other texts are a little bit more subtle and you have to use evidence. The angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, you have to piece together evidence to see that that is a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. But you don't just see Jesus in every verse. That, that's too easy and it leads to bad interpretation. But you can see every narrative as a stop on the roadmap to the cross. You can see it as a stop on the roadmap to the revealing of Messiah. I can't preach Christ in every text, but I can preach Christ beginning with every text. There's not a single verse in Scripture that we cannot find a road to the cross from that verse. To get back to our example of Ruth, she's a young widowed Moabite woman who eventually marries an older man named Boaz. And together they not only exemplify what a law-abiding and Yahweh-worshipping family looks like, but they're also the the great-great-grandparents of King David through whom Messiah Jesus would come. And so we see the, the, the pathway to Christ through that story and really through any story. And then one more question, and this one is maybe a little bit more complex, but that is the nature of the Bible. It's not an easy book. What are the parallels, not the exact copies? Let me repeat that. What are the parallels, not the exact copies, which apply today? Altogether, what are the parallels, not the exact copies, which apply today? We can learn lessons from these texts without violating the intended purpose of the narrative. I hope that's the case because I base the entire series of Strength in the River and Strength in the Desert on that concept. Staying faithful to the intention of the story and yet seeing that there are applications. But we don't want to exclusively moralize a text. We don't want to do that. But that doesn't mean we can't observe parallels and, and take lessons from it within its intended purpose. For example, the story of the almost sacrifice of Isaac There's probably not a modern-day parallel. There's probably not a New Testament parallel in that it's hard to find an example of God asking someone to sacrifice his own child, obviously with the exception of himself. 
but you don't see that. So, so we can't say, the lesson here is, is that, that if God ever asks you to sacrifice your child, you better be ready to do it. That's not the lesson. But we do see that Abraham truly did trust the Lord completely, and he did it enough to follow through, or at least attempt to follow through with God's command. And we get a divine commentary in Hebrews eleven nineteen that Abraham, his reasoning in his mind was, again, the omniscience of the author, his reasoning in his mind is that because Isaac was the child of promise and because God commanded him to kill Isaac, the only conclusion Abraham could come to is that God was going to resurrect Isaac. And he believed in resurrection. So we can admire the complete devotion of Abraham, including his belief in the doctrine of resurrection in the overall context of the story. Now, when you're considering the parallels, not the exact copies, remember last time when we talked about the law of God, I said every law of God has a New Testament parallel, has a New Testament counterpart because it it represents the moral mind of God. That may or may not be the case with narrative. For example, the land promises in Israel or to Israel are largely not present in the New Testament. But it's a faulty assumption to think that that just means they've been abandoned. It simply means they were focused upon and revealed in the Old Testament and they weren't a part of the, the, the main focus and the main thrust of the New Testament. But it doesn't mean that they've gone away. Who wrote the rule that if something is in the Old Testament and not in the New, that that means it's invalid? That's, that's too broad. So what are the parallels? Not the exact copies. Okay, we've kind of got our, our, our orientation done here and our specific instructions. Let's fly the airplane. Let's did like we did last week. And I want to revisit some of the texts I've already mentioned. And we'll, we'll do three of them. The first one, I want to have you turn with me to Genesis 34. Genesis 34. And this is the story of Dinah in chapter 34. And I'm just going to walk through these questions. First question, what is happening in the story itself? What's happening in the story itself? It's a long story, so I'm just going to set the scene for you. We won't, won't read the whole thing. We may do a couple of verses. Jacob and his 12 sons and his daughter Dinah are sojourning. They've settled in the region of Shechem as, as nomads. They're outside the city. They've been called by God to be a, a separate people set apart for, for the Lord. The eventual forming of the nation of Israel would come from this family. So they are to stay pure. They are to stay united together. But look at verse 1 and 2. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. Now, this is one of those instances in which the story is somewhat ambiguous. And and I think it's deliberately so. The English translation of verse 2 makes it seem very clear that this was a forced violation of Dinah. But the Hebrew is not that clear. There's a a technical Hebrew term which is specific to the crime of rape, and that's not used here. And she could have been humiliated simply in the fact that she was not married or that she had done something that had humiliated her family. But did you notice why she was in that situation in the first place? She wanted, verse 1, to experience the world. She wanted to get out from under the family and go see what the world had to offer. Now, scholars have debated for centuries, and I'm not going to try to resolve this debate right now. They've debated for centuries as to whether or not Dinah was actually violated or she simply got entangled in an illicit affair, illicit relationship. Verse 3 shows that the man who violated her, 
He was the prince of the land that he loved her and he spoke tenderly to her. In other words, he was trying to have a relationship. So before anyone gets huffy and takes sides, the text is deliberately ambiguous. You can't take a side without really just saying, I'm giving my own opinion. Yes, there are definitely lessons to be had about being in the wrong place at the wrong time, but is that the point of the story? The father of the young man who violated Dinah goes to Jacob to ask for Dinah's hand in marriage for his son and even offered a great bride price for her according to ancient Near East tradition. This, of course, didn't sit well with two of Dinah's older brothers, Simeon and Levi. They all have the same mother, Leah, so there would be a closeness there. So they craft this plot to trick the men of Shechem for violating their little sister. They tell the men of Shechem, sure, we'll agree to the marriage only if all the men of Shechem get circumcised so as to be like us. Part of the sons of Jacob will be one people together. So the men of Shechem got together and talked about it and agreed, probably weren't thinking real straight. And while all the men of the city were in bed recovering from their circumcisions, Simeon and Levi came and killed them all, took a lot of the livestock, and we find out later in Genesis, they maimed a lot of the livestock that they left behind. Now again, there's at least immediately some ambiguity as to whether or not they were justified in doing this. But Jacob does immediately rebuke them. Who is this story written to? Well, it's part of the Pentateuch. So the audience, again, is is originally the, the people of Israel on the plains of Moab, on the eastern banks of the Jordan River, ready to take the promised land. And I would imagine this is a story they didn't necessarily want to relive. What, why is this here? It's like having a mass murderer as your distant relative. Man, why do we have to even talk about that guy? But it did show them some important truths, which I'll show you in a moment. Our second question, what theological implications are found in the story? What theological implications are found in the story? What do we learn about, uh, about God? What do we learn about mankind? Well, the one thing that the brothers got right was their concern for the purity of God's people. They did not want to mix They did not want to mingle with the people of Shechem, and this was correct. The people of Shechem were Hivites, and these were Canaanites. And several hundred years later, God would command Israel in Deuteronomy 7 to wipe out the Hivites for their extreme idolatry and for possessing the land that didn't belong to them. But that command hadn't been issued yet, so what do we learn about mankind? We also see that we're prone to vengeance. God had not commanded this attack And so it was motivated by by personal concerns, not by self-defense, not by divine authorization to mete out the justice of God, which he would give several centuries later. But, But God is concerned about the purity of his people and mankind tends toward vengeful behavior. And so there are theological implications for us. Our third question, how does this scripture contribute to the kingdom theme of scripture? How does this story contribute to the kingdom theme of scripture? God's purpose for his people as promised to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, his father, Isaac, and personally to him was to make them a great nation. That was the whole point. But two of Jacob's sons put the whole plan in danger from a human standpoint. Look with me at the very end of the chapter, verse 30. After this event, then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. 
But by God's providence, the kingdom tragedy was avoided despite these terrible circumstances. But here's what the Hivites were actually getting at. This wasn't about just a love affair. Look all the way back at verse 8. Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. In other words, they were the Hivites were saying, hey, let's just be one big happy family. But was that their real intention? Amongst themselves, here's what the Hivites said. Look at verse 23. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. In other words, their intention was to swallow Jacob's family such that the nation of Israel would never exist. It would never exist. So God's kingdom plan to use Israel to point the nations to a future kingdom was preserved in the divine providence of God. Our fourth question, how does this story make its way to Christ? How does it make its way to Christ? Leah was Jacob's first wife. And she gave him his first four sons. The embedded and very clear tradition of the ancient Near East was that the firstborn son was the blessed son. He would receive the the double inheritance. He was the, the owner of the family business, so to speak. He was the head of the family. He was the honored one. So Reuben is the firstborn of Jacob. In Genesis 49, Jacob has gathered all of his sons near the end of his life. He's blessing his sons. He's prophesying over them by the power of the Spirit of God. And he says in Genesis 49.3, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. And at that moment, Reuben's probably going, that's right. Bring it on, Dad. Tell me what I'm getting. But Reuben had taken one of his father's concubines, Bilhah, for himself. In fact, Bilhah was the mother of Dan and Naphtali. But Reuben went to her, and so Jacob's blessing turns to a curse. The next verse, unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. In other words, Reuben was just fired from being the firstborn. Well, who's next? Simeon and Levi. Genesis 49, beginning in verse 5, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. This is Jacob's, Jacob's pronouncement on them. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O oh, my glory, be not joined to their company, for in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness, willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So once Reuben got fired as firstborn as the preeminent one, Simeon was next, he's fired. Levi was next, he's fired. Guess who number four is, who's now number one? Judah. And Jacob blesses Judah prophetically. Genesis 49, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, the nations, all of the world, in other words. Now the firstborn of Jacob 
becomes the ancestor of the firstborn of God, the Lion of Judah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, just a side note on the sovereign providence of God. Do you remember how Jacob ended up marrying Judah's mother, Leah, in the first place? He got tricked into it by Leah's father. He woke up the day after his wedding with the wrong woman in bed with him. And yet in God's providence, she would be the mother of the son who would be the ancestor of our Lord. And so how does this lead to Christ? Well, very clearly. And our last question, whether the parallels, not the exact copies which apply today. You know what this story tells me? That nothing can thwart God's redemptive plan. Nothing can at all. His purpose to bless the coming nation of Israel wasn't derailed by the moral failures of, of Reuben, of Simeon, of Levi, wasn't derailed. And ultimately, as we would later see in the story of Joseph, all of Jacob's sons would humble themselves as true worshipers of Yahweh. They would be forgiven of their sins. Could I put it this way? Simeon and Levi, in today's terms, were mass murderers. And yet you will see them in heaven. And in fact, they have gates in the new Jerusalem named after them. That's an amazing story of redemption to me. Now, the next two won't take as long because I've already told you the stories. The second one, Genesis 21. Turn to Genesis 21, and I'm just going to point out a couple of things here. What's happening in the story itself? Question number one. This is the story of Abraham casting out Hagar and their son Ishmael because Isaac is the chosen son. Isaac is the child of promise. Isaac is the one through whom Israel would be formed. What are the theological implications found in the story? Whether we learn about God, whether we learn about man. Well, what we learn about God is that God sticks to his plan. God didn't say, you know, you're kind of right there. Ishmael's a teenager and, and Isaac's just his little bitty kid. Yeah, let's just go with Ishmael. No, God stick to his, sticks to his plan. His plan was for a miracle baby. And Abraham tried to make it happen himself by going to Hagar, his wife's servant. And God said, yeah, I'll deal with that. But no, we're still sticking with my plan. We also learn about God that he's gracious and he's merciful. Even with Ishmael, the non-chosen son, God visited him and, and, and Hagar and comforted them in their time of distress. So we learn about God's graciousness. What do we learn about mankind? The first thing I learned is that our plans are never as good as God's and don't try to outplan him. Don't try to outsmart him. Well, God, you're taking just a little bit too long. I think I'll do this myself. That never goes well. And so there's a clear lesson there for us, theological implications. Our third question, how does this story contribute to the kingdom theme of Scripture? Isaac is the chosen vessel to create the nation of Israel. He's the miracle baby born when Abraham is 100 and Sarah is 90. This gives God inherent total rights over his nation because nobody else can take credit for Israel's existence. And so in the, in the kingdom plan, in the kingdom theme of Scripture, Isaac Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the whole nation of Israel must say, we are a nation wrought by the grace of God, by the miracle of God. How does this story make its way to Christ? Well, we only need to see the genealogy of Matthew. You don't have to turn there, just listen. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. David would come along later through Judah, Many generations later, and through David's son Solomon, eventually you have Joseph, the husband of Mary, through whom Jesus receives his legal Davidic lineage. And through David's son Nathan, 
would come Mary, who would give Jesus his physical Davidic lineage. You know, the one thing that the leaders in Israel never challenged Jesus on was his lineage. They never challenged him. When he was called son of David, they had to admit because they had records in the temple. Yep, he's a son of David. In fact, two different ways. Fifth question, what are the parallels, not the exact copies which apply today? Obviously, we could take all kinds of lessons which don't really apply directly, such as don't ever have a baby with your wife's maidservant. I think that goes without saying. But look with me at how God treats the non-chosen son. Chapter 21, verse 13. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. Hagar was all alone with her young son in the wilderness and they ran out of water and she couldn't bear to watch him die. So she she sat him down and she sat down far away from him as far as an arrow can go. She was crying and the boy was calling out ostensibly to her and look with me at verse 17 and God heard the voice of the boy and the angel of the Lord called to Hagar from heaven and said to her what troubles you Hagar fear not for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is up lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand for I will make him into a great nation then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink no He's not in the chosen line. He will not be the father of the Jews. But look what God did in verse 20. God was with the boy. He married an Egyptian woman and eventually became a great nation. You know what this tells me? Look how God treats chosen Gentiles. Look how he treats Gentiles. God's grace toward Ishmael blesses me. It gives me hope because I'm way more like Ishmael than I am like Isaac. It reminds me of God's grace towards someone like me, chosen by the grace of God. Well, one more. I want to end where we began. Turn with me to Genesis 22, next chapter over. Is this a story about sacrificing for others, your time, your Bible reading, your prayer? Or is it a story about leaving a family legacy of love, as others have suggested? Let's go through our questions. What is happening in the story itself? Abraham has been commanded by God to sacrifice his his son, his only son. He's obeyed God, but he's stopped by God at the moment of swinging the knife to kill Isaac. What are the theological implications found in the story? What we learn is that to assuage the holiness of God in relation to sinful man, sacrifice is necessary. And by the way, before you question God on this, Isaac deserved to die. How can we say that? Because Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death and Isaac was a sinner. And so he deserved to die. But we also learn the concept of atonement, of substitutionary sacrifice provided by God. Look with me at chapter 22, verse 7. Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Look with me at verse 13. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And so we learn of atonement. Our third question, how does this story contribute to the kingdom theme of scripture? How does it contribute to the kingdom theme? Well, not only was Isaac a miracle baby born to these aged parents, he was the child through whom God's plan of salvation would be introduced to the world so that God could reclaim 
uh, kingdom citizens, as forgiven people to someday populate his, his earth. But by taking Isaac literally one knife stroke away from death, God could now prove that he had elected, he had chosen Israel, not because he's trying to choose a winning team, but because he would make something that is impossible now possible. You remember what we said this morning that with God, all things are possible. With man, salvation is impossible. Well, this is exactly that. And we see this lived out hundreds of years later. God would declare to three million descendants of Isaac, In Deuteronomy 7, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Here it is. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Three million people owe their lives and their existence, their very relationship with God to the fact that the angel of the Lord called from heaven at the right moment when a knife was three feet away from the throat of Isaac. In other words, Israel owes everything to God. Because he didn't choose them because they were big and mighty. He chose them because they weren't. They were the least. Our fourth question, how does this story make its way to Christ? The similarities between Isaac and Christ are astounding. They point so clearly to a divine plan since these two events took place nearly 2,000 years apart. And I I think anybody but but the most insincere person who won't see these things can see these parallels, the similarities. I'll just give you a few of them. How about 20? Number one, the father led the son to be sacrificed. I'm going to go fast, so I don't know if you'll be able to write these down. The father led the son to be sacrificed. Number two, a donkey was taken to the place of sacrifice. Number three, they left their homeland to go to the place of sacrifice. Isaac traveled three days to the mountain of sacrifice. Christ traveled from heaven. Number four, each son was called the one and only son of his father. Five, both were born by the miracle of God, Isaac to a 90-year-old mother and Jesus to a virgin. Number six, both were sacrificed in essentially the same place. Mount Moriah is one of the small mountains in Jerusalem. Number seven, their companions stayed behind for the sacrifice. The servants of Abraham stayed behind. Jesus' disciples abandoned him before the sacrifice. Number eight, it was the father who would strike the son. Number nine, the son carried the wood or carried the cross to the place of sacrifice. Number 10, the son asked questions of the father. Number 11, the son was submissive to the will of the father. He didn't for, wasn't forced to be a sacrifice. Number 12, the son was bound to the altar. He was bound to the cross. 13, God himself provided the sacrifice. 14, blood was shed and the sacrifice was substitutionary in nature. Number 15, both sacrifices demonstrated love for God, Abraham's love for God, and Christ's love for God. Number 16, the son ultimately survived the sacrifice. Number 17, Isaac was resurrected symbolically. Hebrews 11 says that Abraham believed that God would resurrect him, and Jesus was resurrected actually. Number 18, both were resurrected on the third day. Isaac, three days after starting the journey to Moriah, and Jesus, three days after his death. 19, both were divinely ordained by God. 
And one more, number 20, both Isaac and Jesus were present at Isaac's sacrifice. As Abraham was about to strike Isaac, verse 11 of chapter 22 says that the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, always a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, called out to Abraham to stop him from killing Isaac. And 2,000 years later, the angel of the Lord stepped out of heaven not to be a ram caught in the thicket, in the thorns, but to be the lamb of God with a crown of thorns on his head, to be God's substitute for Isaac and for his father Abraham and for you and for me. And our final question, what are the parallels, not the exact copies which apply today? The, the doctrine of election is so obvious in this account that if you can't see it there, I'm really shocked. It's there. It, it's everywhere. It's, it's, it's saturated, saturating this story. Isaac was born by the will of God. He was chosen by the will of God. He was rescued by the will of God. He was blessed by the will of God. And here's an example of what a chosen child receives from his father. Genesis 25, verse 5, Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. What's our parallel? Well, I, I think one of our greatest passages concerning our election to salvation, look what we get. Ephesians 1, beginning of verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Because we are chosen by God, just as Isaac got everything that his father has, we get everything that Jesus has, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's an obvious parallel to me. And I hope it is to you as well. Well, those are just three stories. And I hope that as you read through the Old Testament, as you read through the Pentateuch especially, that those questions ring in your mind so that you see that God's redemptive plan is so consistent. It's so perfect. And we don't moralize the text and jump straight to a lesson. And as we answer those questions, it just, it just comes alive. Listen, if you will read the Old Testament that way, you'll feel like you're there. You'll feel like you're there and you'll feel like you know these people. I spent more time with Isaac this week than I did with any of you. These are friends to us. I hope that the way you read the stories of the Old Testament will forever be changed because I think in them you find the keys to the kingdom of God. You find a clear pathway to Christ, a clear pathway to the cross and to the gospel of Christ. Well, let's pray for a moment. Thank you, Father, for the attentiveness of these precious ones here. I, I pray, Lord, for their Bible study. I pray for their reading of Scripture. And as they're reading through the Pentateuch and reading through the Old Testament, that they see the paved stones that mark the way to Jerusalem, that take us to Golgotha, that they see the shadows that become the reality of Christ, and that as they are blessed in the Old Testament, they would be filled with an eagerness and an anticipation to get to the new, to see what was foreshadowed in the old, now revealed in the new. We thank you, Lord, for the Pentateuch, Thank you for these stories. Thank you for the redemption of Christ, which is so clearly foreshadowed in the stories that we've already looked at just even this evening. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.